Well, good morning. Please, uh, in continuing in the, in the encouragement to pray, continue to pray for Pastor Troy and his family as he is away on sabbatical. Uh, he has been sending the elders um, pictures from recent trips, I think, or a recent trip that he and Beth took. And um, if you know Troy, then the photo tells the story, the photos tell the story uh, that nobody is surprised about, climbing mountains. Uh, nearly missing his boat because uh, he he took a little excursion by himself. Beth was smart enough to stay in the boat, apparently, but uh, he uh, took an excursion up into the mountains, and uh, he thought that when the uh, the boat captain or the person on the boat kind of shook, the native kind of shook his head, he thought it meant there was a green light to go ahead and go, and that the boat would be there when he got back, and apparently uh, it, it was moving. Um, so we made cracks like uh, swing in on a zip line like Indiana Jones, and uh, and things like that. Uh, but, you know, uh, Troy is uh, enjoying his sabbatical, and he really looks like he is enjoying himself. And, uh, and so, continue to pray for him. And uh, just, um, just as a note, I think I've said this before, but if you are the kind of person who is all about the next thing, um, both Pastor Robbie and myself are sharing preaching responsibilities while Troy is away, and the way I describe it is uh, triple, double, double, double. And, and so this is the end of my triple, and so Lord willing, you'll have uh, Pastor Robbie up here for the next two Sundays, and then I'll have the next two Sundays, and then Robbie will have the, fa- the, the final two Sundays, and uh, that will be the end of it, and Troy will be back, and Robbie and I are going on sabbatical. Um, <laughs> mostly kidding there. But, um, so, so this morning, uh, we're going to continue to look at Jesus as the bread of life, and uh, we looked at uh, Him as the bread of life in part one a couple of weeks ago, and then last week we looked at Jesus walking on the water, which on a side note is a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? That the, the filler between these two stories is Jesus walked on the water. You know, that's, that's just kind of, you know, the speed bump, so to speak, of one destination to the next destination is he walked on water, which basically means that our stories, including Pastor Troy's, are very dull. You know, I, I mean, we see these pictures of Troy kind of up on a mountain, beautiful scenery, waterfalls and green and, and water and everything like that, and we think, you know, man, that's, what an exciting adventure. But there are no pictures in there of Troy walking on the water. Interesting. So Jesus' story is way more interesting than any human being on the planet. So let's continue to walk through chapter 6 here as we really start to dip into Jesus as the bread of life. We're going to start by looking at these people who are continuing to aggressively seek Jesus, and there's a good description of them, and this is kind of point number one, and that is they are false followers. These people are false followers. Now, unfortunately, part two of Jesus as the bread of life starts in the same way as part one does. You have a bunch of people from the feeding of the 5,000 that we're about to look at, probably not all of them, because they got in boats and went to the other side, and I don't think there were enough boats to get 20,000 people, which is kind of the number, across the sea. 
So there were some of them who, who went across, and, and you would kind of hope that the similarities would stop there, right? That these people finally got it. They've been thinking about the, the bread and the fish. They've been thinking about the other miracles they either saw or heard that Jesus did. And they're like, we cannot wait to get in these boats or even to walk, which we, they, a lot of them did in the previous part of the story. But we cannot wait to find this Jesus so that we may worship him because we have concluded from everything we have seen and everything that he has said that he is the son of God. You would hope that that's the case, but that is not the case. They were fed miraculously, and they still did not understand the purpose of this miracle. And so we see that what's about to happen here really just proves that these people are what they are labeled as in this message, and they are false followers, and here's why. And here's part A, or letter number A, as I normally say. Jesus exposed their motivation as falling way short of the mark. Jesus exposed their motivation as falling way short of the mark. Now, how many of you have ever, this is kind of a side note, but how many of you ever played Wii Bowling? Wii as in W-I-I. Now, many of you, especially the more sadistic of you, Love that game, not because you, you know, can spin the ball and all the technology of holding the wand. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just, just wait till I get to the end. But, uh, you know, you're tossing this wand and this ball is moving every which way direction. But you know and I know that the more sadistic people in the room, the part of the fun is to release the ball when it's behind you, right? Right? And you're like, oh, that's so fun. And, and the ball flies in the crowd, and the crowd jumps up, and their little invisible arms and hands wiggle, and they in fright and chase and things like that, you know? And, 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 and it's just kind of bizarre to see someone or to be a person who, at least electronically, you know, can roll a bowling ball, and instead you let it go behind you into the crowd or something like that. That is falling way short of the mark. But folks, I promise you, these folks miss the mark way further than that. These folks miss the mark way further than that. And we see, first of all, that Jesus exposes their motivation as doing so. Now, as a reminder, remember from John 2 that Jesus did not entrust himself to the many people who believed in his name due to their seeing the miracles he was doing. Okay, so, so you had these, these people who originally in John 2 said they were seeking Jesus because of the signs that he had done, and Jesus in turn says he would not entrust himself to them because of that fact, that it is a, it is a wrong response to Jesus to just go after him so that you can see the next miracle. But now you have this group that we're talking about here, which is kind of a big chunk of, of the 5,000. We don't know how many. But they take following Jesus to an even lower level. So in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Jesus didn't answer their question in the way that you would answer that type of question, but he did give them this answer in verse 26. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus told this crowd that their motivation to seek after Jesus was even more crass and more demeaning than the motivation that the sign seekers had. 
They were after Jesus not because of his tricks, but because of the stuff his tricks produced. And you go, what that means, it's kind of like, you know, that would be kind of an insult to the average person. But in the case of the Son of God, if you said, we don't care what is miracle, you know, we don't even care if he does a miracle, as long as he puts food in our stomachs, we're fine with that. We don't care if he even steals the food, that's fine by us, we just want the food. And so Jesus truly exposes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And here's a description of them. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Bread would qualify as earthly things. Bread would qualify as something that fills the belly. And these people wanted bread, proving they were enemies of the cross of Christ. But not only did Jesus expose their motivations, but the letter number B is the crowd themselves exposed their own motivation as falling away or falling way short of the mark. Now, if you remember a couple of Sundays ago, because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the people concluded at that point that Jesus was this coming prophet that Moses prophesied of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses says this, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is him, or excuse me, it is to him you shall listen. And, 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 and they believe, the people at that time believed that this, when this prophet came, he was going to be equal to or greater than Moses. And so when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they immediately kind of get a mob rule thing going on where they say, whether Jesus likes it or not, let's grab this guy and make him a king. And again, this was a wrong reaction to the miracle. Instead, the crowd should have had really one of two possible reactions to what Jesus just did. They should have said maybe like Peter. Remember, we used this example last week that Peter was in the boat, and Jesus said, set your boat out to go fishing. And he was like, Lord, we have been fishing all night, and we have not caught anything. And Jesus says, go ahead, but for you, we will do it. And so they, that was my best Jewish impersonation. But anyway, they, they hop in the boat, and they go out into the water, and of course, the boat is full of fish. And uh, Peter immediately doesn't say, wow, let's, you know, let's buy more boats and let's make a market or something like that. No, he says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That would have been a good reaction from this crowd. Hey, we've gotten all this food, we've gotten all this fish. Who did this? Jesus, he's God. Get away from me, Lord, for we are sinful people. Or maybe... There's a second reaction that they could have had, and we looked at all of the different accounts in the three Gospels that account Jesus walking on the water, and in Matthew's account of Jesus walking on the water, all of the stuff happens, then Jesus gets into the boat, and it says that they worship Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. But unfortunately, the crowd didn't react that way either. They didn't have either reaction. They should have had really both. 
They wanted a king who could do miracles, especially if the miracles kept food in their stomachs. And this really shows in the dialogue of verses 27 through 34. Because in verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Now notice here that Jesus is is trying to expose the worthlessness of their desire just for bread, rather than for Him. He's, He's saying, you know, don't work for the food that it perishes. That's a worthless endeavor. Pursue eternal life. If you are focused on the bread, then you are focused on something that will not last. But the crowd misunderstands Jesus. They kind of get hyper-focused on the term work, because Jesus says, don't work for this, pursue after this. And then they said to him in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's kind of like, uh You know, they didn't get it. That's not what Jesus was pointing out to them. They should have said, oh Lord, we're sorry for pursuing after bread. Describe to us what it means to pursue after you. Describe what it means to pursue after eternal life. They don't ask for any of that clarification. So the Lord again tries to correct them. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. If you, want to, if you want to fixate on this work word, then let me tell you what, 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 what he backdoors and says, this is what I'm trying to get across to you. So in verse 29, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus says that the work of God requires faith. Believe in the one God has sent is essentially what he's saying there. But again, guess what? They don't get it. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Didn't he just feed nearly 20,000 people? Weren't they there because they either saw or heard about previous miracles? But setting those things aside... Remember that they believed that the coming prophet would be the greater Moses. And so by basically saying, then what signs do you do? Think of the arrogance behind this statement. Think of the, think of the pride that's going on here. When they asked, then what signs do you do? They had the explanation that if he were greater than Moses, then he would do greater things, right? And what did Moses do? Or what was Moses connected to doing? Jesus is about to correct them again because they messed something else up. But, uh, but verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this is what they were saying. They were saying that Moses had given them the entire nation of Israel, 3.5 million people, something along those lines. He had gave, given the entire nation of Israel manna, otherwise known as bread, six days a week for 40 years. And Jesus only fed a crowd within a much larger nation in only one sitting. And so indirectly, these folks were basically saying that Jesus would really have to up his game if they were going to trust in him and believe in him and prove to them that he was the greater Moses. And again, Jesus patiently corrects them one more time, doesn't he? 
In verse 31, it looks like the people said that Moses gave their fathers manna in the wilderness. So Jesus says in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And from this correction, two things happen. Number one, Jesus kind of uses this as an opportunity to transition from the idea that he provides the true bread to the idea that he is the true bread. And the second thing that happens is the false follower's terrible motive is absolutely exposed. Because Jesus says in verse 33, he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, did you notice here that the bread all of a sudden becomes a he? That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Do you call your bread male or female? You might, and and you're strange too. But the bread all of a sudden becomes a he. So Jesus has now made himself the bread that comes from God. And those people, hearing what Jesus is saying, like the woman at the well, who at the time didn't get it either at this particular point in the conversation, but the woman at the well said, you know, when she heard about this living water that would eternally satisfy, said, sir, give me this water. And they, like the woman at the well, when they heard about life-giving bread that is given to the world, said, sir, give us this bread always. And folks, if you are only pursuing Jesus because of stuff, and if you didn't get it when he was gently potentially correcting you like he is now, if you don't get it and and you topped off that ignoring, yeah, Jesus, I know you're what you're saying here, but just can you give me the bread? If you are ignoring the correction and you're topping that off with, with the, the arrogance to say directly or indirectly that, that Jesus needs to up his game in order for you to believe in him, then you don't know Jesus. You do not know Jesus. And you are a false follower. But this statement, sir, give us this bread always, was unfortunately in many ways the nail in the coffin of proof that these people had no idea who Jesus was. They were being offered, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, they were being offered the superior satisfaction of the universe. That's what, you know, think about that. They were not being offered, you know, something like uh, steak versus bread or, or something along those lines. They were being offered the superior section of satisfaction of the universe, and all they wanted was bread. Pastor Kent Hughes, which we chuckle about being quoted, but I like what he says here. Pastor Kent Hughes said that the people really led with their chin when they said, Give us this bread, sir. You know, they're duking it out, and they kind of come in with their chin fully exposed, and they say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus is about to deliver an uppercut from which they cannot recover. As he reveals himself to be the bread of life, he is that superior satisfaction, which is the title of point number two the superior satisfaction. How does Jesus reveal himself as the superior satisfaction? 
Letter number A is this, he is the superior bread. So what do you mean by that? Well, point number one is this, manna perishes, whereas Jesus is eternal. Manna perishes, whereas Jesus is eternal. Verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, we already know from verse 29 what Jesus says. You know, He says, work here. He means to believe here. He's not saying work like, you know, jump through these hoops and do these 10 steps and stuff like that. He's just simply saying the work is believing in Him. And there's great satisfaction, basically, in coming to a loaf of bread and eating, right? I made the joke, I think, two weeks ago for Melissa to collect the names of people who raised their hands and volunteered the fact that they make homemade bread. Let's do that again real quick. Raise your hand if you make homemade bread. Raise them up high. My wife needs to see because I'm going to bring the butter and the honey. Okay? So uh, I'm not inviting myself over to your house, but I kind of am. Okay. Um, but, but that's it. It is a wonderful thing to, to be in a home where the bread was just made and you kind of open the oven and everything like that. Everyone's ready for lunch, I know, but uh, everyone's going to Panera. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and you just have those smells of fresh cooked bread, and then you go and you just kind of slice it open, and there's the steamy stuff, and you know, and you just kind of slather some butter on there, maybe a little honey or, or something like that, and you're just kind of just sitting there, and you just go, this is going to be the most amazing thing ever. And then you take that first bite. I mean, there is great satisfaction in, in coming to a loaf of bread, fresh bread and eating. But it is purely physical and it will not last. It won't. And it will do nothing for your soul. Looking on Jesus and believing in Him as the true bread of life, trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior is not only beneficial for the soul, but also for the body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What an amazing statement. That if you partake of, no matter how amazing the fresh bread is in front of you that you made and everything like that, no matter how wonderful that moment is, it does nothing for your soul. But if you partake of, believe in, place your trust in Jesus as the bread of life, not only your soul, but your physical body gets saved, becomes new. That is a slightly more superior bread, isn't it? And what I mean by slightly is gigantically superior. As Jesus said in John 7, 38, he says, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Bread is great in that it temporarily satisfies the appetite, it sustains the body, but the bread of life is infinitely greater in that it sustains both body and soul for all eternity. Number two, 
Manna was for a specific nation in a very small piece of geography in a big wide world. Jesus as the bread of life will be offered to every tongue, tribe, and nation in the world. There is no history that says manna started showing up in Greece. All over the world, you know, there's no, there's no history that says manna started showing up in Egypt or in Asia, deep Asia. There's no record in history that manna started showing up when the people of Israel were in the wilderness. God wasn't saying, I'm not only going to bless the Israelites here, I'm going to go ahead and bless the world. But Jesus said in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Man, it was just a small event in history that happened with a small group of people in a one-time kind of thing, whereas here, Jesus as the bread of life versus the manna is someone who is going to give, be given to and will bless the entire world. As it says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And what do you mean by the end will come? Well, here's what happens after the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, a verse, a couple of verses that are very dear to our church. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so whereas manna was a one-time thing that was a tremendous blessing to people who were starving to death, But it was a one-time thing in a small little area of the world with a small group of people. Here is Jesus Christ as the superior bread who will be shared with the world. And one day, every tongue and tribe and nation on the world will be represented in heaven for all eternity. Again, he is the superior bread. Point number three. The satisfaction that manna provided was always temporary, but the bread of life satisfies eternally. The satisfaction that manna provided was always temporary, but the bread of life satisfies eternally. I'm not knocking the miracle of manna. I think it's an amazing concept and thing for a flaky white bread that tastes like crescent rolls to show up on your lawn daily. You know, go and get it. That's a pretty cool thing. But it had to show up daily, didn't it? And they had to collect double on Friday so that they would not work on the Sabbath, right? So why on earth did they have to collect it daily? I what? Dependence? Yeah, it's spoiled. That's one thing that, that the Lord said it was spoil, or God said it was spoil, and it did that one time. You know, a guy got a little bit greedy and and paid the price. Hopefully, he got a really bad tummy ache. But it would spoil. But on the flip side of that, the reality is, at the end of the day, you got to have more. You're hungry. You're dependent upon it. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, says this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
That verse in a nutshell says that in the presence of the Lord, there is infinite satisfaction. You have fullness of joy there. Oh, the the man is kind of good today. But you're not like, the manna is just making me supremely satisfied. There might be a day, oh, the manna is exceptionally good today. I'm supremely satisfied. But the next day you're like, manna again? But in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore. Jesus says in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But not only do we see that Jesus was the superior bread, that he was the the superior offering, but the second thing, letter number B, is we see the sovereign Savior. The superior satisfaction that comes through the bread of life is only possible because that person receives a superior salvation. Jesus tragically says to these people in verse 36, He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. That is a tragedy. That is an absolute tragedy to hear those words. D.A. Carson describes it well when he said, they have seen only a mightily endowed man, a potential king, not the Son of God who perfectly expresses the Father's words and deeds. They have seen only bread and power, not what they signify. This crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. So how can Jesus in the presence of a great group of so-called followers who actually do not believe say with such confidence in verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Because often we gauge doing something on the uh, public opinion of the people around us. And he's saying, I have come to do the will of my Father who sent me, and that is, he goes on to start explaining salvation and that sort of thing, and he's telling it to a bunch of people who are, in all, for all intents and purposes, at that moment, doomed. So how can he say that with such confidence? If so many people can see miracles and still not come to faith, does that mean that somehow Jesus failed? And we see that it is impossible for him to fail because he is a sovereign Savior. So how so? And we'll be landing the plane with these things. Number one is this. His salvation is God-initiated. Verse 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Once people come to Jesus, they will realize that behind their willing decision to come and believe lies the mysterious and invisible work of the Father who all along was drawing them to Christ. It's just the way it is. Jesus doesn't say, all who free willingly come to me and that sort of thing, 
I know there's a decision involved. I don't understand it all, but I do know that it says that all that the Father gives me, his salvation is God initiated. As he says in John 6 verse 44, a little bit later, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so his salvation is God initiated. And folks, I know sometimes people get a, a, you know, treat this as some sort of rock in their boot. Oh, you know, and, oh, you know, and that sort of thing. Don't do that. If you are firmly aware of your own sin, thank God that he initiated this thing. If you are firmly aware of how fickle, and that's a kind word, human beings are, To hear no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and then to know that I've been drawn by him to the Savior is precious indeed. The second thing is his salvation is safe. If I was offered the opportunity to have the deepest needs and desires of my soul satisfied, in the presence of a perfect and righteous God, you better believe I would take the offer. Let me say that again. If I was offered the opportunity to have the deepest needs and desires of my soul satisfied in the presence of a perfect and righteous God, I would take the offer. But on the flip side of that, I would always have in the back of my mind, enjoy it while you can, Bill Turner, because it's only a matter of time before you get kicked out. I mean, a sinner like me in the presence of a perfect and righteous and holy God, that won't last. That will not be a long-term contract. But in verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That word never if you love grammar, here we go. If you hate grammar and your eyes glaze over, give me a few moments. But, but that word never in the Greek is in the emphatic future negative. That and $20 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But it's in the emphatic future negative. That's just fancy grammar speak. That means there is no way this is going to happen. In the Greek, we have basically two words for negation. You have the Greek word ooh. Omicron, Upsilon, but it's all, uh, or Upsilon, however, whatever year you took Greek, you, you pronounce things differently. But you have the word ooh, and that is really uh, absolute negation. If you see ooh, it's kind of the idea, no way, it's not going to happen. Then you have the Greek word may, mu, eta. And it's kind of more subjective, kind of depending on the circumstances, whether this is not going to happen or not. It's a little bit more subjective. And I say all that just to say, both of them are being used here. And it's kind of the idea that there are never, not ever, ever going to be any circumstances that would make this word never a flexible word. And oh, by the way, in case you think there might be, there isn't. There isn't. It's not possible. There's no chance of it being possible. 
And it's interesting that some people think, you know, well, you know, this negation here of, you know, he will never kick us out. Can we jump out or something like that or that sort of thing? Well, they have no problem going back to verse 35 where Jesus says, you will never hunger, you will never thirst. And the word never there is the same word, ume. And they're thinking, oh, this has to do with my advantage maybe, or this has to do with something that's positive towards me. So I love the idea that I will never hunger and I will never thirst, and that is true. But you will never be kicked out either. You will never be removed from His presence. And this is very good news for the guilty. Folks, the guilty people are funny. Guilty people drive down the road, and if a policeman kind of turns on the lights and passes after chasing after somebody, they always think it's them. People who know they are guilty are just waiting for their moment to be thrown out of some place. You know, they may protest test it when it happens. Oh, you know, I'm not guilty. I'm not this. I'm not that. But they know deep down they deserve it. And whether it's deliberate or accidental sins, we do not deserve God's forgiveness. We do not deserve His redemption. We do not deserve the eternal satisfaction we receive from the bread of life. And yet He emphatically will never cast us out. And just in case you might think this is still a squishy issue, Point number three is this, his salvation is solid. Verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now notice the progression of these verses. First of all, it says the Father gives people to the Son, or people look on the Son and believe in the Son. The second thing is they are secure because the Son will never cast them out. The Son will never lose them. And then the absolute guarantee of all of this is the third thing, and that is the Son will raise these people up on the last day. And these statements are dependent upon one another. If you are somehow kicked out, then the other ones don't apply. And vice versa in all three of those things. If you are drawn by the Father to look on the Son and believe you will have eternal life and you will not be lost or thrown out. And if you are not lost or thrown out, you will be resurrected. That is a rock-solid salvation. And now we see, literally here on full display, the infinite superiority of the bread of life versus just plain old bread, don't we? I mean, to taste and see, First Peter, that the Lord is good. After hearing all this, don't you think that's a slight understatement? You hate to say that about Scripture, because that's not true. I know it's not an understatement or whatever. I know what Peter's getting at, but, but to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And then to be aware of your sin, to be aware of God's sovereignty and salvation, to be aware of His goodness and kindness and love towards us and and the satisfaction He offers us by being the bread of life and those kinds of things. Taste and see that the Lord is amazing. I mean, in Him you have a satisfaction no food on earth could provide. And folks, you can see it by my profile, I love food. In Him, you have the Father graciously giving you to the Son, and it has to be grace. It is never the Father's duty to give people to Him. And in Him, you have true, not half, not partial, not possible, But in Him you have true eternal life. I think that's part of what Jesus said, I am the true bread. I think it's all true. And you have true eternal life. You have eternal fellowship with God where despite yourself and despite myself, we will never be kicked out or lost. So what do we do with that information? Well, I think we go back to the two reactions that you could possibly have. Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Perhaps this morning the Lord's really laid on your heart the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. I highly recommend you say not just get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner, completely understandable reaction, but you have the second reaction and you fall on your face before a holy God and you worship Him. You are the Son of God. May you, O oh Father, take me from where I am now and give me to your Son. Or, Lord, please, thank you for, for strengthening my faith in knowing and just being amazed by the fact that you have given me to the Son. Both Christian and non-Christian in this room have an opportunity to worship and to rejoice in the things that we learned this morning. And so let's do so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing picture of you being the bread of life. You are the one who, by your great grace, when we partake of the bread of life, find every desire in our life satisfied in you. And you are the one, as the bread of life, who is the sovereign over salvation. And because of your great grace, you initiate salvation by drawing us to the Son. And by looking on the Son and believing and trusting in you, you secure us for all eternity. We are never lost. We are never forsaken. And we will not be left in the dirt or the urn, or the casket, or the ocean.
Lord, wherever our physical bodies end up, that is only a spot that is temporary at best in light of the eternity we will spend with you as you promised you will raise us up on the final day. What a tremendous hope. God, I pray for those right now who don't have that hope. Maybe they never thought of it. Maybe they've been thinking about it a lot. But I pray, O Lord, that they heard from your word this morning. Help them not to be like these false followers who, no matter what type of correction you provide, all they say is, give me bread, give me bread, give me bread. I pray, O God, that they would repent and they would say, give me the bread of life. And they would look on you and believe and trust in you today. May today be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, I don't just pray this for the people who are here, but I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we've heard that you are the bread of life that will be given to the world. God, I pray that you would just continue to call us to the world. Lord, we have children, or we have aunts and uncles or cousins, we might have parents who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Oh God, I pray that we would not just rejoice in and of ourselves in this secure salvation that we have, but we would offer it to everyone we know who does not have it so that they might have it as well. So Lord, I pray that this this message this morning by your great grace will just explode in wonderful acts of faithfulness and trust in you, whether it be someone coming to know you as Lord and Savior today, or the opportunities we're going to have this week to share the gospel with others. May we take advantage of each of these moments, I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.